find our places, and we'll get back to it. Again, thanks so much for coming and be a part of First Baptist Church today, and man, what a blessing already, amen? I mean, the people surrendering their hearts to the Lord and getting baptized and showing that and just the opportunities we have to serve, it's, it's really great to be a part of a church that cares, and I'm really thankful for all of you. I really mean that. We are studying in the book of Malachi, and so... Um, if you're not familiar where that is, just find the book of Matthew, the start of your New Testament, and turn left, because Malachi is the last book of your Old Testament. And uh, we've been in it a couple of weeks, and we finished chapter one, and so today we're going to be starting in chapter number two. And uh, actually, chapter number two, we're going to see the first nine verses, is, is a continuation of the same thought that came out of the end of chapter number one. And at, if you were with us last week, at the end of chapter number one, from verse six to verse 14... Um, it, it wasn't, you know, one of those touchy-feely, feel-good messages, you know, where you walk out of here feeling like, man, it just sure is good to be in church. I mean, it was one of those kind of, it was kind of a harsh rebuke, kind of in your face. God is saying, this is the way it is, and, you know, you stink if you don't do that. I mean, it was kind of like that, and uh, somehow or another, we were able to be blessed. I'm not sure. It was awesome. Okay, so the idea is this. A little more seriously now. The book of Malachi is written, obviously, to the nation of Israel, and very specifically, in a lot of cases, it directs um, the audience of the priesthood. And historically, what we have seen in the last couple of weeks is that the condition of the priesthood at this point in time in history, which is about 400 years before the first coming of Christ, the last book in your Old Testament, even chronologically, um, the condition of the priesthood was, was pretty bad. Uh, they were in a bad state of affairs. And, and again, this is the last word that God has given. Uh, this is after they've returned to Jerusalem after the captivity. They've rebuilt the temple and the city walls, and yet God didn't return. The, the glory hadn't shown up. And the people are discouraged. Um, there's a lot of apostasy. Um, there's a lot of apathy. Uh, all they have to go on, there's no open miracles. There's nothing new going on. They just have God's word, and the people are kind of drifting away. And that being the case, understanding that snapshot of history before the first coming of Christ, we saw that doctrinally Malachi points to a future time, which would be this time of coming tribulation before the second coming of Christ. Well, we believe that we're in the very last days of the church and the second coming of Christ is imminent. Exactly when, of course, we don't know, but it could be very soon. And Interestingly, if we study church history and we understand seven churches in the book of Revelation represent seven periods of church history, the very last church addressed is the church of Laodicea. And in this church, we have taught, and I believe, that we are in a period of time at the end of the church age that is the Laodicean church period. Interestingly enough, similar to the priesthood, similar to Israel in the time of Malachi, what we find ourselves in, according to Revelation chapter 3 in those last several verses of that chapter, 14 to 22, is that Laodicea just receives rebukes. I mean, all the other six churches have something good to say and something bad to say to each of those churches, but when you get to Laodicea, God doesn't really have anything good to say. He just has tarred things to say. He, he, just, he addresses the fact that the people of God in this time period in which we live as an overwhelming majority are just kind of apostate. They're kind of apathetic. They, they kind of are just selfish. And so he rebukes them over and over again. So, so Malachi, what I'm trying to say to you is Malachi, in their context, is a really good snapshot and a picture of things that we can learn in our context. So I want you to know, though, obviously, we, we're going to teach the Scriptures accurately. We're going to look at them. But I don't want to just spin this whole thing negative. Uh, the text, again, today is negative. But what I want us to do is be able to learn from their mistakes, and hopefully we won't repeat them. I, I want us to be able to kind of turn, you know, the bummer into a blessing and see how God can use it in our lives. If there's a rebuke to be read, it's not without a reason. Uh, and if there's a rebuke and there's a reason for it, then certainly we can take the corollary to be true. In other words, there's got to be a, a good reason for blessings that could come in our life as well. And that's really want us, what I want us to look at today. Again, by way of introduction, let me just say, like, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter number 28, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is repeating to Israel all the things they need to remember before they enter the promised land. 
And Deuteronomy 28 is a really important chapter. And what you have basically in Deuteronomy 28 is the first 14 verses where God through Moses reminds Israel, if you obey my word, I will bless you. And he lists 14 verses in different ways how he's going to bless them in their crops and their families and their fields and their relations and their protections and all the ways God's going to make them the head of all the nations. And then he turns a corner in verse number 15 of Deuteronomy 28 and he goes on for 54 verses and he explains if they don't follow God, if they don't listen to his word, if they don't do what he says, he's going to curse them. And he lists all the various different ways that he's going to curse Israel if they don't follow his ways. And so I find it very interesting, and I, and I just kind of stumbled across this, that there's 14 verses of blessing, and there's 54 verses of cursing. And you might think this is a little extreme. I'm not teaching this like it has to be. It's just interesting to me that if you take 14 away from 54, what's left is 40 and those of you that study the scriptures know that 40 is a number that's used over and over again in the Bible as a time of testing. It's a number that has to do with a trial and a test in your life. And I think that whether that's significant in Deuteronomy 28 or not, I want you just to understand that all of life is a test. And it's a test to see how we're going to behave and how God's going to respond to us as a result of the way that we behave. And so... Clearly, uh, this principle stood for Israel that there were blessings as a result of a certain behavior and cursings as a result of a certain behavior, but certainly it's true of all of us as well. So the series in Malachi, we have titled Seven Key Steps in Your Walk with God. And the first week, in the first five verses, we saw that the first step was don't doubt God's love. God said to Israel, I have loved you. And he quotes Israel's replying and saying, what do you mean you've loved me? And they doubted God's love, and he reassures them through the story of Jacob and Esau. And then last week, we saw the, the rest of chapter 1, and the second step was to keep up with the details of your life. And he addressed the priesthood and how they were not going through the details of the sacrifices and the offerings specifically according to the prescription of the word of God. They were offering polluted bread on the altar. They were calling the table of the Lord contemptible. And they weren't following through when they should have offered God their very best. They were offering God the blind and the lame and the sick. And God said, there's a curse that comes as a result of that. We need to keep up with the details of how we flesh out our Christianity. And in similar fashion, what we're going to see today in today's title and the third step in our walk with God is to understand the principle of cause and effect. You need to understand the principle of cause and effect because literally that's all we see. It's the same idea of sowing and reaping. So Malachi presents some curses that are going to come on the priesthood, but they don't come without reason. They did do some things wrong. They did neglect to do some things right. So like it says in Proverbs chapter 26 and verse number 2, the curse causeless shall not come. God tells us, know this, if there's a curse that's going to come on your life, if there are bad things that are going to happen, they don't come without a cause. And so with that in mind, please just follow along. I'm going to read the first nine verses of Malachi chapter 2. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung on your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my, command, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according as you have not kept my ways but have been partial in the law. Okay, so he's got a lot of rebukes for the priesthood and let me just remind you in case you haven't been with us, the New Testament equivalent, 
There's no need for a physical priesthood anymore. There's no need for us to go to another man to intercede before God. But God has said to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are all a royal priesthood. That each and every one of us, because of Christ's death on the cross and the veil being torn, each and every one of us can go directly to God and, and talk to God about man. We can go directly to man and talk to man about God. Each and every one of us have this privilege of what is called the priesthood of every believer. So when we read about the priests, I want you all to understand that it refers to you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray and see if we can separate this thing out and figure out what he's trying to say. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word again, we're looking at an Old Testament prophet. We're looking at specific historical data that deals with the problems that they had, but yet, Lord, all Scripture is given by you, and it is profitable for our lives today. And my prayer is that regardless of where we find ourselves and and, and the fact that the era and the time in which we live doesn't have to do with a literal priesthood. It doesn't have to do with literal offerings of animals and blood. Nevertheless, there are applications to our lives, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to make the proper application, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see this whole principle of cause and effect. The curse does not come without a cause, and blessings don't come without a cause as well. And so, Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to you to come and to be our teacher and to help us see the things that you want us to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I believe God wants to teach us today, and this is the first point in your notes, is to be separate from the world. And this is really coming out of the first three verses, to be separate from the world. And so it's written in the negative, of course, and we see that, but it starts off talking about the cause. It says, if you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart. So certainly God wants us to hear his word, and he wants us to lay his word to heart. Now listen, you and I... We all know that anybody can say that they hear God's word. Anybody can say that they're laying it to heart. But is there any way that we can really know? I mean, face it, don't you realize that anybody and everybody can say, look, I believe, I hear, I understand, listen, leave me alone. And we say, well, I don't know if you really mean it. Is there any way that anybody can know whether you really hear and whether you really lay it to heart? Well, the liberal will say no. There's no way. Leave me alone. This is private. It's a personal relationship. It has nothing to do with you. You can't possibly judge anybody else. And yet still, most certainly, not everyone that says they love the Lord, not everyone that says that they lay it to heart, truly does, right? Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is basically telling us a principle that we well understand. Actions speak louder than words. And it's it's one thing, it's fine and well for you to confess with your mouth something, but if your life doesn't back it up, well, it doesn't really matter what you say. But really hearing and laying God's word to your heart will result in some things. And basically what it says is, is to give glory unto my name. That's what he says, if you will not hear and if you will not lay to heart in verse 2, to give glory unto my name. This is really the crux of the matter. God wants for us to hear his word and lay it to heart so that we will give glory to his name. What exactly does that mean? Well, if we dig a little deeper on this idea of God's name, the overwhelming revelation of God throughout the scriptures, the way that God describes his name to humanity as he describes his name as holy. More far and away than any other reference that you'll ever find in any other place. Yes, God is just and God is jealous and God is a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, it all boils down to he is holy. And if you just search in your Bible program this little phrase, his holy name, you will just have hundreds and hundreds of references because when we refer to God's name in the Bible over and over, it's his holy name. Psalm 111, verse number 9, very specifically, he sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Does that mean that his name, like if he had a name tag, was holy? Well, you can think of it that way if you want to. You consider it as just the way that he describes his name. Holy and reverend 
is his name. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, maybe a little more clear. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, capital H. God's name is holy. God is interested in you giving glory to his holy name. Well, what exactly does it mean to give glory? You know, these are church words. We come to church and we talk about giving glory. We don't use this kind of language in normal daily life, but to give glory literally just means to make it manifest. What it literally means is just to show it forth. God displays his glory. In other words, he puts his glory on display. The glory is is the manifestation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. It's just to declare. It's to manifest. It's to show forth his holiness. And the priesthood in Israel at that time didn't do that. And since they didn't do that, there were negative effects. In other words... God wants us to live our new lives in Christ separate from the influences of this evil world. That's why that's the point, to separate ourselves from this world. The New Testament equivalent would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 where he says after a long list of things where he talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, he says, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. That's written to a New Testament church. And he tells us this over and over and over again. Come out from among them. Be separate. Separate your life from the influences of worldliness, of sinfulness, of the filth and the trash that goes on as a normal part of the course of this world. And what God wants to know is, will you hear and will you lay it to heart? I mean, wisdom is shouting in the streets. We're going to see that in just a second. The question is, will you hear that and will you lay it to heart to the point where you're not just saying it, but your life genuinely demonstrates the fact that you will give glory to his name, which is holy. That's the cause. That's what he's looking for. The effect that comes from that is what we see. It's a negative effect because they didn't do it. So the text is written in the negative. I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. I will curse your blessings. So God says, you ignore my holy name, and you make it dirty. I'm going to take the thing that was intended to be a blessing, and I'm going to turn it into a curse. And there's two specific things that we see. And the text is a little weird here, so we're going to get into it, okay? The first thing that we see, letter A in your notes, is your name. Your name. He starts off by saying, behold, I will corrupt your seed. I will corrupt your seed. Now, we understand when the Bible talks about your seed, it's talking about the seed of reproduction. And so there would be the possibility to immediately think that if you don't give glory to my holy name, that your kids will go bad. In other words, your seed, I will corrupt your seed. And certainly that's a possibility. But you also need to understand that it is certainly possible for children to go bad even if parents are doing the right thing. I mean, God is a good parent and his children don't all do right. I mean, it's certainly possible. I don't want to put everybody in a guilt trip. The point is this. You need to understand that corrupting the seed will have something to do with your lineage. It will have something to do with your progeny. Okay, you need to understand that, okay, in the Old Testament, it talks about the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation, but there's more to this, I think. It is more comprehensively looked at when it talks about your seed. I'm going I'm I'm to corrupt your seed. This is supposed to be a blessing. Your seed is supposed to be a blessing. He's going to turn into a curse. Your seed really is your lineage. It's your heritage. It's your family tree. It's your name. It's your good name. In other words, if you don't care to protect God's good name that is holy and to put it on display and to keep it good and holy and accurate, then God doesn't really care to keep your good name. And it'll be corrupted. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse number one says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And that's why a lot of God-fearing people all over this planet 
will choose on purpose and they will not compromise their integrity even if it means that they lose wealth, they lose income, they lose all kind of financial blessings because they know that a good name is rather to be chosen than even great riches. You see, a good name is a blessing. To think, think of it this way. What do people think of when they think of you? I mean, ask yourself that question. When they think of me, what do they think of? Do they think of me as some talented something that I do at work? Or do they think of me as, you know, just a grumpy old man? Do they think of me as a guy who loves Jesus? How do, how do people think of me when they think of me? However they think of me, that's my name. That, that's what represents who I am. And if we don't care to represent who God is the way he is, then it's going to come down to ultimately affecting who we are. To Israel in Isaiah 65 and verse 16, he makes the connection where he says, and ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. And ultimately, there's going to come a time when Israel is no longer to be the name of God's chosen children. Ultimately, the church will be God's family for about 2,000 years. In Isaiah chapter 66 and verses 21 and 22, I want you to see the association. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. There's your context. And For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. There's an association between your seed and your name. And so the thing that God intends to be a blessing, your children, your lineage, your grandchildren, your good name, can be turned into a curse if you don't seem to care that much about God's good name. If you don't separate yourself from the worldly influences of this life, if you dirty His holy name with a sinful life after you've taken His name, then it's going to come back on you that way because the curse causeless does not come. Letter B, the next thing we see is what I'm going to call your inheritance. Now, you've got to ride with me for this one because, look, we're, we're going to hit this little verse of Scripture that I promise you nobody's heard a sermon on this before. Nobody's heard sermons on spreading dung on your faces. <laughs> but we're not afraid of the Bible around here, so we're just going to jump into it, okay? So there could be a lot of things that this means, okay? And there could be a lot of things, admittedly, that I don't even understand, but I'm going to try and give you some light. I'm going to try and help you understand what God is saying when he says, I'm, listen, whatever it is, it's intended to be a blessing and it's turned into a curse. So let's just jump in and spread. I mean, I get it. It's weird, right? So it's just, I'll take a second and get the visual. Okay, we got the visual. Okay, so <laughs> this would be, would you agree? This would be the ultimate shame. Would this not? I mean, it would just be particularly disgusting and graphic. I mean, the Bible, the Bible is, look, the Bible's an interesting book. I mean, you young people, if you're not reading the Bible, you're reading second-class boring literature. I mean, this is the good stuff right here. And, and let, can I just throw this out there? Because last week we talked about polluted bread and all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of people want to argue about, you know, why don't we update the archaic English into modern language that we can understand better? I mean, why don't the new versions of the Bible update that word, right? Have you ever think about that? I mean, they don't update that one, right? They only update the ones they want to update. I mean, that, that's, a good, that's a word you want to leave old, right? All right, I'm getting off track. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to spread dung on your faces. Man. And then he goes on, he says, Here, here's, here's where we're going to get some light. Even the dung of your solemn feasts. Okay, so the priesthood ministered in the offerings and the feasts of the Lord, and especially the sin offerings. So I did the search on the word dung, and the very first time it ever appears in the Bible is in Exodus 29 and verse 14. And it is specifically talking about the priests preparing the animals for what is called the sin offering, okay? So in Exodus 29, 14, but the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. So the flesh, that's always bad, right? And his skin associated with the flesh. 
and his dung, the internals, okay? Thou shalt take them outside the camp and burn them. And then the meat was used as a part of the offering for sin. Here's the idea. Here's the picture. The dung, obviously, with the flesh is the part that is disposed of in the event of your sin being atoned for. It's clearly waste. You certainly would not want to have it brought back into the offering and make dirty the offering that God is trying to separate out. He's taking the animal as a picture, all ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and he separates out the dirty part from the clean part. This is the part of the sin offering. This is the picture God is trying to paint to help you understand. So the part that is intended for waste, the part that is intended to be cast away at the point of the removal of your sin, i.e. your salvation, does not need to be brought back and, excuse me for the language, rubbed in your face. It doesn't need to happen. So, The New Testament, there's only one New Testament reference to the church using this word. And I believe this is where we're going to get some light. It's in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi, and he's giving his own personal testimony of his life in chapter number 3. And in verse number 4, Paul says this, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, there's the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then he gives the list of his accomplishments before he knew Christ. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. So in Paul's previous life before Christ, he had quite the list of accomplishments, things that were considered very good in the eyes of his peers, as a religious Pharisee. But then he met Christ. And the conclusion in verse 7, he says, but what things were gained to me, all of those accomplishments of my previous life, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, here it is, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So what could God possibly be trying to teach us with this idea of cursing your blessings and spreading dung on your faces? All joking aside, the dung seems to represent for us the things of your unsaved life, the things of your life before you came to know Christ, even maybe the things that you thought were good, things that you valued, things that you put confidence in, things that you trusted in. And Paul says, all that stuff, that's waste product when it comes to the sin offering. When I met the Savior, when my sin was atoned for, the dung gets cast outside the camp and is burned. And it does not need to be brought back again. It has to do with separating yourself from worldliness. It has to do with separating your life from the things of your prior life before you knew Christ. If you don't separate your new life from your old worldly behavior, how about this? Maybe, just maybe, it'll show on your face. I mean, you ever really look close into the face of a person who is solely given to sin? Have you ever noticed? I mean, it's kind of like you could just see it. I mean, not all the time, but it's interesting how people wear their sin in a way that it's even visible. They think they're hiding it. Well, there's no room for that in the life of a true believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. The flesh and the skin and the dung, those things are passed away. And behold, a lot of things are new. Is that what it says? No, all things are become new. 1 Peter chapter 4 puts it this way, verse number 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wines, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So friends, the time past of our lives, the B.C. portion before Christ is enough. Whatever 
revelings and banquetings and lasciviousness and lusts and excess of wine and banqueting and all of that thing, all of those things that would have characterized your life before Christ, that's enough. You've had plenty. You don't need any more. Put it behind you. Old things are passed away and all things are, are become new. Amen? That's what God expects. That's what he's trying to teach us. So I put a question for consideration in your notes. What is new about your life that is different from your old one? What has passed away that used to be a part of your life? It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. Sometimes it's harder for young people. Young people, we just had people who were baptized and several were young and that was a blessing. That was awesome. When I think about young people, you know, if you, you trust the Lord at a young life, it's not like you had some gross sin before you got saved. Hopefully, anyway, you grow up in good families. I mean, I get it. Nevertheless, there should be new aspects to your life. How does that exactly play out for a kid who was a good kid and then trusted the Lord? Well, I'll tell you one way it plays out for sure. They all of a sudden love God at a level they never did before. How is that manifested? Well, they actually love God's word and want to read it. They actually don't like sin anymore, right? So if you're hanging around with bullies, you don't want to do that anymore. Whatever the case might be, you're not going to be a part of what the previous life was all about. That's a changed life. Those are old things passing away and all things becoming new. You don't want that brought back in and rubbed in your face again. That's the result of not taking the steps that God desires. That's what's going to happen in your life. Interesting, go back to Malachi and in verse number 3, here's this little phrase at the end of verse 3. And one shall take you away with it. That's an odd little phrase. And one shall take you away with it. Well, one, someone is taking somebody away. That sounds kind of like a rapture, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like somebody is coming and taking people away. That's what it says. And one will take you away with it. So let's just look at it three different ways. Historically, we could say this is before the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel never really got right. They never received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And what happens? In 70 AD, they're dispersed among all the, all the nations. I don't know if you recognize it or not, if you've done some history into World War II, sadly. The ultimate, there is an ultimate literal fulfillment. Yes, there is an ultimate literal fulfillment of what is spoken of in Malachi chapter 2 because in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, they required the Jews that were in those concentration camps to have their faces rubbed in the waist of the outhouses. And it was the most disgusting thing. And people went crazy. Some of the people, they just absolutely went crazy. And that's... Listen, it's a terrible thing. It's disgusting to even mention it. All I'm trying to say is when God says something's going to happen, something's going to happen, historically speaking. Doctrinally speaking, we point to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is going to be a rapture. There's going to be a rapture at the end of the tribulation, but the rapture at the end of the tribulation is different from the rapture of the church, and you have to understand that very briefly. Matthew chapter 24 Verses 40 and 41, Then two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, and the other left. Whenever I teach this in classes, I always like to stop here and say, one shall be taken, the other left. How many of you would rather be taken? How many of you would rather stay behind? Invariably, people think of the rapture of the church, thinking Matthew 24 has to do with the church, which it does not. And they think the ones that are taken are taken away to glory, but that's not the case. The ones that are taken in Matthew 24 are taken away to judgment. You say, where do you get that? Well, just by reading the Bible, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. This, I mean, a little Bible will mess up everybody's theology. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them, the ones that they gathered, into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So someone, the angels, are going to come and take them away with it. With what? With their sin. And what are they going to do? They're going to cast them into a furnace of fire. Why? Because in the sin offering, the dung is cast in the fire. That's where it's put. But what about us practically? Because that's all about Israel, and thankfully we don't have to have that. Well, we have the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church we've seen in weeks previously. It's the time where we give account of our stewardship. Let me just tell you something, Christians. You say you know the Lord Jesus. You say you love him. You say you listen to his word and take it to heart. 
If you continue to live a life that is reminiscent of your old life before you knew Jesus Christ, and you didn't separate yourself from worldliness, okay, pictorially with the dung on your face, it brings shame. You will be ashamed at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when you have to stand before him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15 describe the judgment seat of Christ at that time and how we're going to be judged for our works, not our sins. 1 Corinthians 3, 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Again, actions speak louder than words. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Because Christ already paid for our sins, but yet we live our lives still in a very worldly fashion. And what happens is we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all of the things that would be rewards. Hence, I gave the title, Your Inheritance. Your inheritance, your rewards will be burned up. And yes, you will make it into the kingdom with smoldering ashes for clothing, with nothing. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 10 talks about the 4 and 20 elders most clearly understood as a representation of the church of Jesus Christ as they take the crowns that they earned and they cast them at the feet at the throne of the Savior. And can you just imagine... Of all the people that stand, the crowns are things that we earn as a result of our righteous living in Christ after our salvation. And if we cast our crowns at Christ's feet as a result, as a way of giving thanks, as a way of giving glory, as a way of saying to him, really, Lord, I didn't even do this. You did this through me, but since I submitted to you, you're you're rewarding me with a crown? Really, it's your crown here. And they cast them at his feet. Let me just tell you something. If that's true, and I believe it is, you don't want to be the guy at the party who doesn't have a crown to cast. That would be a shame. That would be a shame. You're like, I don't really care. I'm going to be there anyway. All right, well, roll the dice and play it your way. God's trying to warn you so that you don't have to do that. It would be embarrassing. Listen, you need to understand cause and effect. Understand it this way. Worldliness brings a curse separation brings blessings. That's a fact. That's just true. Worldliness brings a curse. Separation from worldliness brings blessings. That's just true. You don't have to agree. You don't have to believe it. It doesn't matter. God said it. What he wants to know is, will you hear it and will you lay it to heart? Because if you will, you'll give glory unto his holy name. The rest of the text is, I'm going to put under another category, and that's this. Roman numeral two, be stewards of the word. Be stewards of the word. Verses four through nine, and really we're just going to hit a few verses in the middle. Okay, so he starts off and he says, my covenant is with Levi as the priesthood. I think I might have put in your notes some references to the book of Numbers. You can look those up on your own if you want to, where God makes his covenant with Levi as the priesthood to stand and to do that. And he says in verse number five, he says, my covenant was with him of life, and peace. So let's start with the effect and then we'll go back to the causes. Okay, the effect is life and peace. That's really, that's really what, that's what they get. Ultimately, my covenant was with him. I want to give him life and I want to give him peace. That is ultimately, friends, that is the bottom line. That is what every human being ultimately wants. Every man, woman, boy, and girl ultimately seeks immortality. We want to live forever. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to leave a legacy. They want that family name. They want to leave something behind so that people remember them in a positive way after they're gone. It's a natural desire. God put that desire there. And so very quickly, and again, this is review for a lot of you, but let me just give you the two main categories of life. You have eternal life and you have abundant life. Okay, you have eternal life and you have abundant life. Eternal life deals with the quantity of life. It lasts forever. Abundant life deals with the quality of life. How are you going to live your life? What kind of life are you going to have to live? The other thing is peace. And I would argue that all men, women, boys, and girls, ultimately what we seek 
is we seek peace. I would argue that even terrorists, car bombers, warmongers, all seek peace. They seek it in crazy ways. They seek it their way. They seek it. They're willing to kill to get it. You know what typically we do in Western society in North America? You know how we seek peace? We seek peace through wealth and riches. And what we typically do is that rather than killing somebody else to get our way, we live a peaceful society, generally speaking, with justice and law and order. But we just think we need more and more and more and more stuff because more stuff will make me happy and more stuff I can get more insurance policies and retirement plans and and all of these securities and ways to insulate and isolate myself from the terrible things of this world. And the more money I have, the more peace I'll ultimately have because that evil bad world out there can't get to me. That's the mindset of an American. That's the way we think about it. The problem is it doesn't work that way. Money can't secure your peace. History proves that. Right? It says in Ecclesiastes that if you're a lover of a man loves silver, he's never going to be satisfied with silver. It doesn't work that way. Peace comes from the Prince of Peace. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's only two kinds of peace. You have peace with God, and you have the peace of God. And those are different. We're not going to study that today, but if you want to, just, again, your Bible program, if you want to search it, search those specific phrases, peace with God. That has to do with your salvation. Romans chapter 5, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God is the thing that people say to people when they're on their deathbed. Friend, have you made your peace with God? Have you received Christ? Are you at peace with God because he saved your soul? But then there's the peace of God. Because after you have peace with God, you can still live your life in turmoil. You'll live your life in turmoil if you don't live according to his precepts. If you don't walk according to his precepts, your life's going to be a mess. And so there's no peace in your life. That's called the peace of God. That's a daily peace that Jesus offers to us as we walk with him. Just run the references yourself. You'll find that. Those are the effects, life and peace. But what are the causes? Well, there's a lot of causes listed. There's kind of a laundry list, and I have them in your notes for you. And we have fear the Lord and meditate on the word and speak the right things and walk in peace and equity and evangelize. Let's just, let's just look at that because he says it's my covenant. Well, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement. It's a treaty. It's a deal. It's a negotiation, right? A covenant is an agreement that you make where both parties are expected to do something. Why would Levi get life and peace? Well, for the fear wherewith he feared me and for the law that's in his mouth and there was no iniquity in his lips and he walked in peace and equity and he turned many from iniquity. These are the things that Levi did that God said, that's my covenant with Levi and I'll give him life and peace. So, fear the Lord I mean, have a proper, healthy fear of the almighty God of the universe. Meditate on his word. The law of God in his mouth does not mean chewed up. The idea is is the idea of meditation. You just chew on it over and over again to get all the nutrients out of it, okay? It's like Joshua 1.8. It's the idea that you just meditate on his word. It's to just kind of chew it over and over. It's in his mouth. It will not depart out of his mouth. And then it says there was no iniquity in his lips. That's like Job. Remember the story of Job? All the terrible things happened to him in the first couple of chapters. And, and, you know, his wife is a blessing. You know, she's like, curse God and die. And it says, you know, you speak as a foolish woman. And he didn't, he says, God never charged, he didn't sin with his lips. And he never charged God foolishly. He He didn't sin with his lips. He spoke the right things. Walk in peace and equity. Let me give you a few references. Romans 12 18. This is an important verse to understand because it it helps us to, to balance our lives in real life. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know how that works. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you have an antagonist. Sometimes you have somebody in your life that is just after you to make your life miserable and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And God knows that. So he says, Don't you be the aggressor. As much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. 
How's that going to happen? Well, interestingly, Psalm 119, 165, it's one of my favorite verses. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Do you ever get offended? I, I do. I get offended from time to time. God reminds me of this. Yeah, you're, you're kind of upset. If you're upset, you don't have peace. I'm upset because I'm offended. Why am I offended? Well, somehow or another, I forgot God's principles. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Proverbs 16 and verse 7, a great promise. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So man, love his word and live like it. Take it to heart. And where it says, turn many from iniquity, that's, that's a peacemaker. Turn others from iniquity, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a blessing. It's the ministry of reconciliation. That's evangelism. Reconcile a holy God with sinful man. Turn many from iniquity. Man, those are some great causes. Those are some things that if you do these things, man, God's going to give you life and life abundantly and peace, not only peace with God, but the peace of God. Back in Malachi in verse number seven, it says, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So messengers, the word Malachi literally means messenger. Messengers carry messages. And the priests, yes, they served the temple. Yes, they slaughtered the animals. Yes, they had a lot of duties. But ultimately, they were the chief stewards of the scriptures. And the Levites that were assigned to actually copy the scriptures were called scribes. So if we study deeper into the scriptures, we have time to pull them all out. I gave you just a couple of references and we'll be done. All of these causes, all of the things in the list of fear the Lord and meditate and speak the right things and walk in equity and evangelize, all of these things ultimately boil down to one least common denominator. For those of you that haven't been in school in a while, that's the main, that's the bottom number on a fraction, okay? The lowest one that'll work. Okay, all of these causes have to do with this least common denominator, and that is this, your personal relationship with the Word of God, every one of them. Every one of them. So that's why I titled this thing the way I did. And I said you need to be stewards of God's word because if you're stewards of God's word, then all these other things will really fall from that. Okay, I said I'd refer to this. Proverbs chapter two, starting in verse number one. My son, if conditional, thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then, here's the, here's the result, here's the effect, shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the path of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, and every good path. Can you see how just fearing him, loving, all of those things stem from the fact that we receive his word? All of those things come from that. I'm going to wrap it up with one little analogy. I think this will help you. Psalm 37.4 is a favorite verse of many people who have been in the scriptures where it says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And the reason why it's such a special verse to so many of us is is because we all have desires in our heart, and we wonder how we can get them. How do I get the desires of my heart? Well, it's really easy. The prerequisite to getting the desires of your heart, whatever that effect is, whatever that end result is that you want, how can I get that, Lord? Well, it says, delight yourself in the Lord. If you'll delight yourself and you say, well, I'll do that. Okay, well, how, do I, how can I know if I do that? Well, if you go a little further in Psalm 37 and verse 23, God gives you the answer. He says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. So in order to get the desires of my heart, I have to delight myself in the Lord. And how do I delight myself in the Lord? Well, that's by ordering my steps by the Lord. Well, what exactly does it mean? How exactly am I supposed to order my steps by the Lord? Well, go to Psalm 119 and 133, and we compare Scripture with Scripture, where it says very clearly, order my steps in thy, say it with me, word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Do you see how that works? 
I want the desires of my heart. Well, delight yourself in the Lord and you'll have the desires of your heart. Well, how do I delight myself in the Lord? Well, you order your steps. Well, how do I order my steps? Well, I order my steps according to God's word. It always boils down to your personal relationship with this book. Do you understand how that works? That is the ultimate cause for the effect that you're looking for. It's your stewardship of the word of God in your personal life. Hearing it, laying it to heart will bring you life and peace. And you know what the really good news for you is, church? The local church is the vehicle that God gave to you as a gift so that you could, to help you, actually realize those things. The local church, if you will really plug in and really be a part, and listen, I'm thankful for all of you that are here this morning, but I'm talking about really plugging in. I mean, be part of a small group, be a part of ministry, be a part of what we're doing. You know what that'll help you to do? That'll help you to be separate from the worldly influences of this old life. You know what else it's going to do? It's going to help you to be a good steward of God's word as you're discipled and you're learning and you're being trained and you're being taught. Listen, just be a part of God's plan. Be a part of his church. And it's all going to come together for you. So seven key steps. We've just finished our third one. The first one, don't doubt God's love. Second, keep up with the details. And third, understand cause and effect. So I left you with one question to consider. Can you see how taking just these first three steps will significantly and positively affect your walk with God? Can you see how that would help you? Okay, the wording of Malachi, granted, it's, it's kind of harsh. It's kind of tough. But we absolutely can learn from that, right? 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to notice. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Referring back to Moses. And we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So he's talking about their experience coming out of Egypt and going into the wilderness. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why are you telling me all that, Paul? Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Malachi, you're getting kind of rough. Yeah, I get it, but how about it? we just take it as a warning so that we don't fall into the same trap? If those who never learn from history are doomed to repeat its problems. In Galatians 6, 7 and 9, I told you it's all about sowing and reaping. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And here's the thing. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Listen, I know the going gets tough. I know that life beats you down. I know a lot of times it's not easy, and I know a lot of times things don't work out the way you expect them to work out. But man, don't give in. Don't cave. Don't go back to the old way. Don't think it was better before. It wasn't better before. It's better now. You've got to stick it out. Don't be weary in well-doing. Man, just hang in there. You shall reap if you faint not. I don't know what the effects are that are going on in your life these days, but if you would look at the effects of your life and say, I'm not so happy with them, then I would like for you just to consider what are the causes that have brought about those effects? And would you rather that some of those things change? Do you need to change any of the causes that will result in a different effect in your life? Because if you do, now's your chance, and we're going to pray about that. So let's pray together.